I'm Trudy Kerr and welcome to The Interviewer. In this series, I talk to artists, campaigners, men and women of influence, musicians, performers, sportsmen and women, politicians, businessmen and women, and anyone who shapes the fabric of our society. My guest today needs no introduction. Her Excellency Mary Louise Calero Precker was a Member of Parliament in the House of Representatives of Malta from 1998 to 2014 and served as the Minister of Family and Social Solidarity from March 2013 to March 2014. Her Excellency then went on to take on the role as the ninth President of Malta from 2014 to 2019 and since leaving this role has returned to her first passion of children and families as the President of Eurochild, shaping the fabric of not just our society but beyond our shores. Your Excellency, thank you so much for being with me today on The Interviewer. This is our fifth interview together over the last couple of years. Well, I must thank you, Trudy. I haven't seen you for a long time, so it's really a pleasure to be here and also to have... Um, I'm sure, a very interesting conversation. Well, I'm delighted. Every time I've spoken to you, every time we've interviewed, there's always been something that I've learned and taken on board. So I'm looking forward to, to talking to you and finding out what you're up to and what you're doing. But first of all, I just want to address, Your Excellency, it's been just over two years since uh, your term as president of Malta came to an end. Whilst I know that you're very, very busy indeed still, and we'll speak about that in a few minutes, do you miss the role? Or after five years of back-to-back -back schedules, was it time to take a breather and take some time out? Well, to be honest, I feel I regained my rights as a citizen. So I feel very happy about that. But being, um, being a president is a, a beginning and an end term. So I don't feel... I, I, I went in there, I'm never... Everybody, or rather many would know that I never wanted to be president, but obviously then I had to accept. And I tried to, to fulfill my role with indulging and work and work and work. That is my style of doing things. But I knew that it's for a fi five-year period. As soon as my term ended, I was already looking at what I would be doing next. This is how I, how I work. So um, taking on roles, and changing roles, to me, is very natural and very normal. So now it's just a new chapter. It was time to move yes, on. Yes, yes. I want to just ask you, come back to that question of your presidency. You just mentioned there that this was not a role that you necessarily wanted, but it was a role that you embraced and have been an iconic president of Malta. What do you think was your greatest achievement as presidency? What do you look back and you say, that's what I'm proud of? What I, it's the fact that I had the, the opportunity of meeting a lot and a lot of people, and in particular children. I opened up the palaces for the people of Malta, people living in these, on these islands. I opened up the palaces for children. In fact, I created then, we set up together with the Children's Hub from the Malta Foundation for the Wellbeing of Society, uh, a children's hub. I, I opened up the private gardens for children to enjoy um, these, beautiful, these beautiful historic gardens. And uh, the fact that I opened up the palaces for, for people and children in particular gave me a sense of uh, satisfaction. In terms, I have always been a people-centered person. 
So on one hand, I have always believed that the palaces are not the precedents, but they are the heritage of the people out there, the people of Malta. So I really wanted them to enjoy their heritage, heritage and feel proud of it. And at the same time, it gave a huge opportunity to meet um, as many people as possible and as many children as possible. Um, creating safe spaces for, for people to speak. For example, I set up in the process of my presidency a national cancer platform where uh, all organizations um, f working with patients uh, with cancer came together to have a safe space where they can discuss and also go together on common, on common tasks. Common. So this sort of collaborative environment, I tried to create this through, through the presidency. I also brought together an interfaith dialogue where all faith traditions came together in this interfaith dialogue. Another platform which I, I facilitated through the presidency was bringing together all the organizations that work with and for women. Uh, well, quite a number of these. But then again, I, I, so I treasure these, uh, these very important opportunities that the presidency gave me to, to, to bring people together, to discuss, to understand. We need to understand that we might disagree, but respect is fundamental. So this was also my, my, my idea of instilling a sense of respect in our conversations. But then with regards to children, children to me have always been my experts, even when I was just a member of the Labour Party in my other life or the Secretary General of the Labour Party, even when I was a, a member of Parliament, I used to create opportunities to be with children, to listen to children. To me, they are my experts and they should be everybody's experts. So the presidency gave me this opportunity through the Malta Foundation for the Wellbeing of Society, the, the Children's Hub within, to sit down with children, listen to children, consult children on issues in particular. Because I believe that we need to see, to, to look at society, multi-society, from a child perspective. Children are today the present, but they are the future. So we need to understand what their aspirations are. And to understand this, we need to listen to them. I'm always so amazed, I'm overwhelmed with the ideas they come up with, with real logical ideas and beautiful ideas, practical ideas, which we adults can never really come to. Another very endearing memory, and which we still hold within the Malta Foundation for the Wellbeing of Society, we're preparing for um, one of these conferences, where the children, the child wellbeing conference, a conference from a child perspective. Can I ask you, because I've seen this in real terms, I've seen you and your passion for children on a practical level. I was uh, interviewing, I was talking to you at a motorcycle rally, ah, yes. and a small child, a young boy, was standing just to our right-hand side. I was talking to you, and there was lots of people trying to get your time. And he was just standing there patiently, and you, he caught your eye, and you stopped everything, and you threw your arms open, and you, he came to you, and you hugged him, and you hugged him for a good long time, and then you spoke to him. But this is not necessarily what everybody thinks about. You've just raised a really good point, which I keep banging on about in the context of the environment, is that this is not our country, it's not our planet. It belongs to 
those that are coming after us as much as it does us. And I don't think an awful lot of people get that. But where does this passion for children come from in your context? Well, it comes probably from when I was young. My father was an educator, so, uh, you know, children were all part of the, of the equation in our family. We're six, so you can imagine, and jokingly I used to say, really, we look like a whole population. And, and, and also my father used to bring in children from, from school with us, at home, to eat with us, and this sort of thing. So my father also, but my father was a role model in this, the dining table was our safe space to discuss. All sorts of discussions used to go on, you know. We were eight people around this table, six children, my father and my mother. My father, even though he was, a, as I, I describe him, a conservative Catholic, but he believed so much in, in what children need to say, or, or rather have to say. There was never a bad thing that could be said at that table. It was an open discussion. You were, your voices were respected. Even if, yes, our voices were respected. Obviously, we argue because we, um, we, we were not yes people, I can tell you. Um, and this is uh, still reflected, you know. I mean, we are all critical thinkers. I mean, we, it, it's, it's, we still come together. We love each other to bits. But we argue on anything, you know, I mean, because we cannot possibly swallow anything from anybody. We need to, to really analyze what is being said, and then we have an opinion on that. But this is all my father's doing. I can tell you, he, he, he was like that even at school. Then when I was 13, I, I got involved in the Catholic action of, at the time in, in my hometown, Army, and this is what we used to do. You know, I was responsible for these activities and we used to, you know, bring children from all over Ormi and discuss and see what we want to do and we plan, we have, a, you know, a plan of action sort of, of, of events and this sort of thing. So this sort of grew, it was natural for me. You and know, these to... would be children from very different backgrounds, I assume. Yes, definitely. Yes, yes, of course. So some children, it might have been the first time that they would have the opportunity to voice their opinions because not every family is like yours. But children have such a lot to say. So when they are given space, it's, it's natural to them to speak, to speak of their aspirations, of what, what they like, of what they don't like, of what they want to see um, change. At least this has been my experience. When I was minister, I consulted children on poverty, for example. And I can tell you, this was in the process of um, bringing together a green paper for a strategy against poverty in the country. And the way they described poverty, they mentioned each and every aspect of poverty. Maybe when we speak of poverty, we only think of the materi material deprivation. But children are speaking of loneliness, of excluding or bullying, you know, in terms of I'm always so amazed through the, with what they say. For example, I consulted children at the time on the choice of a children's commissioner. I wanted to know, as minister responsible, what the children really want in terms of uh, their commissioner. But how popular was that process? Because this is not what normal politicians and people in power do. The problem is we need to, um, first and foremost, we must speak of children's rights, because this is a child's right to be listened to, an integral part of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. The, the UNCRC is intrinsically tied to 
the, the, the human rights, fundamental human rights, the declaration, the UN declaration on human rights. So what we're speaking of, when we speak of children's rights, we're speaking of human rights. I'm assuming, just on the back of what you've said, that this is not always a popular conversation. This is not always well received because not everybody is as forward-thinking as you are. And I'm sure it, sometimes it's got you into hot water. Well, to be honest, Trudy, I was never too bothered with bringing myself into hot water because I do get into hot water. Not because of children, not because of anything, because I am a citizen with a critical mind because this is how, as a society, we should function. For example, you mentioned the environment. Children are complaining all the time, at least when we engage in conversation with them, for them... Um, environment is a priority. They want green open spaces where they can relax. They speak of stress. They speak of traffic emissions. They speak of noise pollution. We can't continue to go over their heads because they need to be part and parcel of the present, but also to build their future. So what we are sowing today will be reaping tomorrow. These are not challenges that are coming from beyond our shores. These are challenges with it, um, that, are, that are unfolding within us and we can prevent. So this is why I believe so much in children. Well, it's obvious, Your Excellency. It's so evident that you have such a passion, not just for young people and children, but also for their rights and for them to be heard. Now, once your presidency had come to an end and you had returned to a normal life, as you had mentioned there, you, instead of just sitting down and sitting back and taking it easy for a while, you then adopted the presidency of Eurochild and took that passion to the next level. So what is Eurochild? Yes, I was elected president of Eurochild in, I think, April 19. And Eurochild is a pan-European organisation. It's a huge organisation. It's in 35 countries of Europe. It's not just the European Union. It's across um, 35 countries in Europe. It's a network of organizations um, that work with and for children. We are 200 members, but within those 200 members, there are 23 what we call National Partners Network that bring together on their own 2,000 organizations across Europe. So it is really huge. We advocate quite a lot um, with the European Union, with the Commission, and I'm very proud to say that um, Eurochild was catalyst, also part of the mix, to bring about a child guarantee, which has been approved a couple of months ago. What's a child guarantee? Yes, a child guarantee is ded dedicating money and attention to the needs of children. Europe, the European Union really cannot boast of uh, being a model of... Um, of children's rights, because child poverty is, rare, is a reality. Pre-pandemic, there was one in five children in Europe in poverty and social exclusion. Obviously, the pandemic has brought... Sorry, one in five? One in five children. One in five children, one in, five children in poverty Europe. and social exclusion? Yes. yes, yes. In Europe? In Europe, in the European Union. In the European Union. This is phenomenal. Phenomenal. Because why, why don't we know this? Because I don't. Because again, we tend to ignore children, or rather, um, make them invisible. Because we maybe when we speak of families, for example, truly, we are making children invisible. 
Okay, so when we speak of material deprivation, when we speak of poverty, we cannot continue saying, listen, we have this percentage. What about children? How are children being affected in that, in that, in that vulnerable group? You know, yes, one in five pre-pandemic um, of European children living in the European Union, the pandemic has compounded on that vulnerability. The child guarantee is, is all about addressing child poverty, health, education, early years, nutrition, and even accommodation. This is exactly what I was going to ask you, because you, you talked about across the European Union, and I immediately assume it's other countries and not Malta, because Malta has, a, has an inherent culture of family where other countries don't. But it's existing in Malta as well. Yes, for example, let's take education. An education system which we invest a lot of millions, you know, hundreds of millions into our education. And we also boast that it is accessible to all. But if you have a poor family and cannot buy uh, the uniform for the children, cannot buy the necessary cool things that is uh, asked to, I mean, that is asked to buy for the, for the child at the beginning of the year, or cannot send a, um, its child to, to a school excursion, how accessible is that education system to, to that poor child? I mean, it shouldn't be that a mother has to reach out to charities to buy the, to buy the uniform or to buy the necessary requirements to start the, the academic year. It shouldn't be like that. It's not accessible. And of course, a lot of mothers who are in that position will be thinking about this right now. Yes. And I'm assuming that if a child doesn't have the uniform, they're not welcome at the school. Is that right? Well, there are also schools reaching out because we, we, we work closely with some schools in particular. And I know that, for example, there are schools that are uh, preparing lunches. Do we have children who their families cannot afford to give them a lunch? And there are schools that prepare lunches for such children, you know. And so we need to revisit. We need to revisit uh, how our systems are working. And if that investment, this huge investment of huge millions investing in our, for example, education, if it's giving us the whole, what we actually target to have, that it would be an, um, an accessible education system, the outcomes of that um, education system. Okay, and uh, we need to revisit. And I'm pleased that these last uh, weeks I had the Minister of Education speaking of early school leaving because this is one of our um, huge problems in this country. We are at the top of the rung of the ladder um, within the European Union for early school leaving. Illiteracy. We need to revisit. We need to Georgia, review. We a, need to be brave and courageous, you know, to to face these challenges and see what needs to be done, and get it going. You have spoken so passionately about children. I want to touch on a topic that is not unrelated to this because you've talked about all the way through about the children being our future, the children being part of our culture. And, and you mentioned back there 
we need to create responsible adults for the future. Now, one of those other points of passion relates to this because you are also passionate about women and women's roles and women in society. And in a recent interview with Roberta Metzola, we discussed that there aren't many women in politics. You being one of those fantastic women who's really stood out and created change. But she also mentioned that women have to have a tough skin to survive in the public eye and as well the associated criticism that goes with that, and we've mentioned that before too. Do you agree? Is this perhaps why we don't have more women in politics and why do we need more women in politics? First of all, I agree completely with Roberta. I'm quite sad on the fact that Roberta is my next generation. You know, I mean, she, she, she's much younger than me, so I come from another generation. And it seems that situation is quite the same. I remember my time when there were few women in politics. I, only, I remember, I mean, Miss Agatha Barbara, the first female president of this country, and she was also the first female minister. She was the only role model I had at the time. And we are still very few. There are still very few women. This is a democratic deficit, which needs to be addressed. Now, lately, there has been the approval of a corrective measure for the next parliament, the next legislature, to hopefully have enough women in parliament. So we are faced as a society. We could not continue to be complacent on this huge minus in our um, representation of society. We need women because they are part of society. They are half of our society. How can we continue to have, in majority, one perspective perspective of things? We need the perspectives of women to be with those of men. I cannot think as a man as much as a man cannot think with the way I think as a woman. So we cannot be complacent on this. We cannot continue to have this um, democratic deficit. So yes, okay, I am. Uh, I was for um, a corrective measure, though I, I, I would have preferred to have another type of corrective measure in terms of separate lists, for example, rather than adding on to Parliament more members of Parliament, because um, I would have preferred that that extra expense would go into the resources for parliamentarians. The corrective me measure on its own will not work. We do not have a review of how parliament operates. If it wasn't for, at the time, uh, Alfred Sand, who was the leader of the Labour Party, and for him to push for having a nursery at the, um, the headquarters of the party in Hamrun, probably I would not have returned after giving birth to my daughter, to, to my, my former activism. So is this why there are not more women in politics? Is it because you have to have a tough skin? Is it because women generally are criticised more readily? Or is it just simply, as you've just said yourself, if there wasn't a nursery, you wouldn't have come back and maybe that puts women off? That's, why that's do one we aspect. not have? That's, that's, one, that's why I'm, I'm speaking of a, re, a review of parliament, of a reform a reform in terms of resources and in, term, in terms of the time. For example, I when I wasn't when I was in Parliament and the mother, I, I used to arrive home ten o'clock, ten thirty. Um, Parliament sessions were up till nine thirty, and until you wrap up and you know put things in and get home, it would take you like ten, ten thirty in the 
at night, you know, and I had a small daughter, a very young daughter at the time. I had put across to my daughter that the family that prays together stays together. So before she goes to bed, she used to phone me up. I would be in parliament, you know, and go out in the corridor to say her bedtime, her bedtime prayers, you know, to, with her. This is how, and I, then I go home and find her asleep. Would you imagine a young mother in our parliament today um, not having a proper um, nappy changing facility, a breastfeeding facility and all that? There needs to be a full-time parliament. Can you imagine through the, I lived through this for 16 years. So I have, you have to earn your living, then you have to go to parliament, then you have to go to your constituency, and then you go home and do all sorts of chores. You've said exactly the same as Roberta had said. She also is a mother, and she also has experienced those challenges that you've experienced, saying that it needs to be a full-time job. Parliament needs to be a full-time yes, job. Yes, yes. You also said in, in an interview that I had with you on one television in 2015, you said that the world would be a better place if there were more women leaders. Yes, yes. It would be more efficiently run, there would be less violence, more care for the environment, more care for families and children. I'm sure it can't be the only reason that there are not that many women in politics is just because of this family situation. What would you say to motivate those young people that you've spoken about just a few minutes ago to consider a career in leadership to be able to make this change? Well, one thing which is positive, and this is something which I, uh, um, I'm hearing often, the parties, the political parties are encouraging a lot of women to stand for the for next elections. So this is encouraging because numbers are very important. However, um, I must say this, and I'm going to take the opportunity. I appeal to women and men to vote for women because I have been also hearing some rumors because of this corrective measure that sort of, well, you don't really need to, to vote for women because women, they'll be there, and so vote for men. And I appeal to women and men to vote for women and men, obviously, but please vote for, for both because we, this corrective measure has to be really transitional and it is very important that women are elected on the wrong thing. We also must have a change in mentality. That is, because many a time I feel that women are bullied, even over the media. Why should how a woman dress mean anything in terms of her contribution? Exactly. I never hear anything about how men dress. Exactly. You know, women's contribution is not contributing to be admired physically, you know. Women's contribution is essential in our society. We cannot afford to continue to have just one gender perspective across. We need now women to be in numbers and to influence policy. So we need them in Parliament. I'm hopeful. Just I'm on hopeful. what, what yes, you've just well, said. I there. am a positive, so I always hope, but um, there is a limit to hope. Your Excellency, I want to finish with one question that I know is on a lot of people's minds right now. And it's a brief question, but I want to close because you have one other point of passion, which is this country, is this nation. 
And we have been in very difficult times over the last number of years. And I suspect for a little while to come. And I want to go back to something that you stated. And you said that the, the country needs to work towards closure to extract itself from the dark pit, which has left a stain on our nation. And this was following the revelation of an independent inquiry which established that the multi-state must bear the responsibility of Caruana Glitz's murder. I don't want to go into the details of that, but I do want to ask you, how do we lift ourselves out of this situation? We have to come together, Trudy. We have to forget our pride. and We have to come together, all of us, each and every one of us, and they appeal to our political leaders and authorities in this country. We're at a crossroads. There are lessons to be learned, and we have to learn that lessons together. We need to have a thorough reform of our constitution to strengthen our, our institutions. We need to ensure rights, the, the, the rights of our citizens. We cannot continue to speak at each other from microphones. There are these challenges. But also, I want to call a spade a spade. I mean, Robert Abela has inherited very difficult situations and has taken some courageous decisions, like, for example, even chucking out um, some, some people from the party, terminating appointments within his cabinet. So we have to acknowledge that. And the way, for example, the commissioner um, is being now appointed, and we need a commissioner that gives us peace of mind, um, but, obviously, having inherited uh, these challenges, Roberta Bella now needs to act. But I have hope because he also said he has accepted the inquiry, but now we need action. We cannot delay. We cannot delay. The pe people are exhausted. From this very dark period in our lives, we have to look at the opportunity. So this is an opportunity to go to the next level, to address what went wrong and do justice. But then we need to from lessons learned to ensure that those lessons are not lost. Your Excellency, you're always an incredibly positive individual and I'm hoping that the answer is also positive. Do you think we can get there? Yes, if we forget our pride, if we stop speaking to each other from microphones, to come together as one family. I mean, we, we have to rise above now because out there there's a lot of reputational damage to this country and we need to address it. We need to address within, but we need to address out there. We need to build trust again. Trust is not a PR exercise. Trust, we need to earn it. And I believe in unity. And in unity, okay, it's just a word maybe, but no, if we really love our country, we need to rise above and unite. Your Excellency, Mary Louise Galera-Preka, thank you so much for bringing your passion, for bringing your love, and for bringing your thoughts to this interviewer. Thank you, Trudy. Really, thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. To listen to this edition of The Interviewer again or other exciting interviews, head towards Spotify or SoundCloud and search for The Interviewer.